Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering getaways to charming Victoria, B.C. with daily flights. Just a quick 45-minute flight from Seattle to Victoria's Inner Harbor, from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Hey, good morning. It's Patricia Murphy. It's Friday. This is Seattle Now. This week, groups of unsheltered people in Kent and Burien are looking to their cities and state for assistance. Last week's inspections of queer bars has the state legislature considering allowing alcohol in strip clubs. And food delivery apps have added an extra $5 fee in response to minimum wage requirements for gig workers. And it seems nobody's happy about it. South Seattle Emerald founder Marcus Harrison Green and Stranger Queer Issues and Politics reporter Vivian McCall are here to break down the week. But first, let's get you caught up. Eastern Washington Congresswoman Kathy McMorris Rogers says she won't run for re-election. McMorris Rogers has been in office since 2004. She's only the fourth person in 80 years to serve the heavily Republican district, which includes Spokane. She's also the first woman to chair the House Energy and Commerce Committee. In making her announcement, McMorris Rogers said it's time to serve her constituents in new ways. A bill that would change the way Washington voters elect their city officials is on its way from the House to the Senate. Under the legislation, local governments would be able to switch their general elections from odd-numbered years to even-numbered years when voter turnout is higher. House lawmakers are split on the idea. Some say the change would polarize local elections. Supporters say it could spur civic engagement. Here are the facts. Only 36 percent of Washington voters filled out their ballots for last year's general election. In 2022, turnout was 63 percent. And the headquarters of the Seattle Men's and Women's Choruses was broken into and vandalized four times over a four-day period this week. That includes someone stealing valuable equipment like audio monitors on Monday. The nonprofit is now investing in a security gate, surveillance cameras, and motion detectors. The executive director told Cairo 7 the headquarters is surrounded by other businesses, but theirs was the only one with any damage. Hey, hey, it is a Friday again. Not a moment too soon, if you ask me. This feels like one of those forever weeks. Things are looking up, though, because Marcus Harrison Green is here. He's the founder of the South Seattle Emerald and a columnist at the Seattle Times. So happy to have you, Marcus. Always a pleasure, Trish. Thank you for having me. Good to see you, man. And Vivian McCall is here, too. She's the Strangers Queer Issues and Politics reporter. Vivian, great to see you again. Great to see you as well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Let's dive into our big story this week. Our race and identity reporter Gustavo Segrero has been following the developing situation with a group of Venezuelan migrants living in the Kent-Tukwila area. A group as large as 500 asylum seekers were previously staying at a camp at Riverton Park United Methodist Church in Tukwila. The bitter January cold snap forced a small group of about 200 of the most vulnerable into a hotel in Kent. The funding was a hodgepodge from nonprofits, contributions from the city of Seattle and King County, and maybe now more money coming from the state legislature. But these hotel rooms are not permanent solutions. The latest development is that the group will be split up and sent to a few hotels in SeaTac. And of course, funding for that will run out in three weeks, according to Gustavo's reporting. You know, Vivian, this is such a challenging situation. And so many of these asylum seekers are just waiting for paperwork they need 
to find employment, just waiting to start their lives here. They have these federal protections. But, you know, it makes me wonder what really we're protecting them with at this point, because all they have is permission to exist in a world of red tape. I've been thinking about this question because I think it's hard to answer it without sounding like you're in a dorm room, but we don't really have a society or a system that is built on helping people in tough situations. Uh, Money is always seen as more important. Economics are always seen as more important. And people don't really want to hear in this day and age that you've just got to throw a bunch of money at a problem to solve it. But it's just not cheap to solve this issue. It's never going to be. And if we are wanting to help people, We've got to house them, we've got to clothe them, we've got to feed them, and then we've got to worry about their economic viability as individuals. And asking people to like get a job, for example, with no place to live, in my opinion, is very cruel and also just like impractical. I feel like we have a lot of movies about how hard it is to get a job <laughs> when you like don't live anywhere. Like and but for some reason that just doesn't penetrate. I don't know why. The irony of this is if you know, in the long term, if we, you know, try to actually address these issues, it might be cheaper than just these constant band-aids that we're um, putting out to people. Like, I I don't mean to quote Taylor Swift. Well, actually, I do. <laughs> Featured prominently in the, in the Super Bowl this weekend. But, you know, uh, band-aids don't heal, you know, bullet holes in, in the sense of, you know, we have, you know, these longstanding issues where we don't have the infrastructure really to support folks who, you know, can't find permanent housing, you know, regardless of whether they are been long-term residents of uh, our area are have migrated here. And so this just, you know, continues to be the chickens coming home to roost, so to speak. I wonder if the Fed should be doing more to help cities because... You know, the Riverton Park United Methodist Church here is trying to fulfill its mission. It's not turning people away. The reason people are there is because when they arrive in the U.S., they have to give an address. And through word of mouth, it's the Riverton Park United Methodist Church here. So they're trying to do what they can do by not turning people away, fulfilling their mission as an organization and a church. You know, the feds are allowing the cities and the counties and the churches and the nonprofits to prop up. A bad system. Yeah, I mean, and I, you know, at looking at the gridlock that we have now in, in the federal government, right? I mean, like, we, it seems like they can't agree on the time of day, let alone, you know, any type of aid for any of these cities. So I, you know, I hate to be cynical, but, I, you know, I don't see, you know, any type of substantive aid coming anytime soon. I mean, there's other cities, larger cities like New York and, and L.A., that are also dealing with these problems and haven't had any level of alleviation. And so this is a problem that, unfortunately, I don't think we will be able to to wait for the federal government in terms of any intervention. Yeah, a very politically divisive issue. You know, 300,000 people have left Venezuela, according to some refugee organizations, in 2023. That's an enormous amount of people. Another story this week from Burien, which has almost no shelter for people, KUOW reporter Casey Martin was out at the Oasis Home Church to talk to people who were being forced to leave there. The church, former home to Sunnydale Village, a community for 60-plus people experiencing homelessness. Burien Community Support Coalition arranged a three-month lease in November. That lease is up now. No other churches in the area will allow Sunnydale to move to their space And, of course, as a reminder, the city of Burien implemented a camping ban, which makes it pretty difficult to be unsheltered in the city of Burien. Another terrible situation for everyone, right? 
These temporary setups, they serve a need, but for the people living there, so completely defeating. And a significant number of people think that Burien is abdicating its responsibility here. I think this goes back to sort of this circumstance that we find ourselves in where people don't really want to solve the, the, the problem of homelessness. They, they just want to sort of eliminate its visibility. Unfortunately, I think the thinking of some people, some city council members in, in Burien is that, hey, if we don't you know, provide any type of you know, infrastructure, you know, al- allowing them to stay here, they, they'll seed away from, from Burien and, and go elsewhere and our problem will be solved, quote unquote. Yeah, it's sort of plugging your ears with your fingers and turning around and just pretending it will go away if you do that, as if homelessness is not a problem that affects the entire region. And right. like, if, for example, like camping bans, I, I hate that terminology as well, because it feels so inaccurate. It's just a, essentially a ban on homelessness. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, those make it impossible for people to exist in those areas without penalty. I know that there has been an offer from the county to, you know, assist with a million dollars. That funding was off the table at some point because Buria never took action on that offer of funding, which, again, makes me wonder what the city of Burien's goal here really is. Vivian, to your point, you know, I think it's pretty clear, (laughs) you know, I'm trying to be fair, but you're right. At this point, (laughs) it seems pretty clear. And yeah, honestly, it's not it's not completely working. B-Town blog reported earlier this week the tents were going back up around City Hall. So you can't shuffle the problem away that simply, apparently. Yeah, if only we had a clairvoyant to determine this outcome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Right on. The State Liquor and Cannabis Board decided to pause enforcement of lewd conduct laws after surprise inspections of several queer bars in the city a couple weeks back. Vivian, this is your story in The Stranger. The surprise inspections and the criticism forced the LCB to admit the rules were outdated. They were supposed to take it up this week. Any updates from you? There aren't a ton of updates. There was a caucus meeting on Tuesday, which basically they were presented with kind of a proposal from staff that was like, hey, we can take up the rulemaking process on our own, or we can respond to one of these six petitions that have been filed to repeal this policy. It really seems like the LCB is pretty willing to do that. They've admitted fault. They have kind of come back to the community hat in hand, like, I'm sorry that we did that, you know, and um, I don't think I've actually ever seen so much change with a governmental agency. It was really very, very quick. And that was a little bit surprising to a lot of people to see, you know, on a Monday, some defense of what they were doing. And on a Thursday, we're going to pause enforcement of this entirely. And there's been some movement in the state legislature to just eliminate this altogether. So it's kind of unclear what the LCB is going to have to do if that law goes into effect. Wow. Wow. Pretty quick, pretty quick action, Marcus. What do you think? Very quick. Yeah. Is this just a an easy problem to address at this point? I, I mean, I, I hope so, right? I mean, I was actually surprised to learn Washington was the only state in the United States, I guess, that, that doesn't allow for uh, liquor to be served at uh, strip clubs and so forth. Like, like, Vivian, why is that? Like, I was surprised it wasn't you know, that we weren't joined by like Mississippi or Alabama or more <laughs> more states that you would that would seem more puritanical, shall we say, I guess. 
You know, I that is a, still a question that I'm trying to answer. Um, I know that some of the language in the law dates back to 1975, which is why you have, you know, in something that's on the books today, you have sodomy in the language and you have wow. exceptions for like, quote, traditional ethnic dancing, which does wow. not seem like maybe the most modern terminology. <laughs> so, so yikes. Need some sensitivity and readers on that thing. Perhaps. <laughs> and and maybe 1975 sensitivity readers didn't pick up on these things. But, um, you know, in 49 years, there hasn't been a real meaningful review of this policy. And, you know, it's had some really negative effects on these communities, like not only the queer community using these laws to enforce lewd conduct violations in a way that know, some people see as biased or strippers. Well, as a result of these inspections, both queer community members and a group called Strippers are workers are pushing for a change to state law to allow alcohol at strip clubs. And these laws are in place to protect workers, allegedly, to protect workers from unprofessional behavior. But Chase Burns on the show last week made the point that people just go to their car and drink and then they go into the club. Like it's not actually exactly. preventing the thing. No, it's not. And, you know, I think when you think about what's stopping Washington from ditching the laws, is it social stigma or have we decided really not to see stripping as a legitimate job? Like this is a workforce like any other. Strippers deserve to make a living. They deserve to feel safe at work. We're also talking about a group of people. They're mostly women. They're mostly people of color. They're LGBTQ. They're single moms. They're people who are coming up from poverty. And to me, it seems really silly to kneecap those people from being able to do that because broadly, it is not this controversial thing to get some sort of alcohol service at a strip club, like not just in Oregon, but like you can literally do that in every single state but Washington state. Part of the reason that alcohol service could be so beneficial is that it could make these places more sociable because right now the only thing that is bringing people in is a sexual element and strippers are arguing we could attract this bigger broader crowd if we have alcohol here bartenders could also keep an eye on how much people are drinking so people are not just going to their cars getting sloshed coming in and then being a problem in the club the clubs also get this other revenue stream which is really important because right now Clubs consider dancers to be the revenue stream. They're independent contractors in Washington state, so they're not actually paid wages. They actually have to pay to go up on that stage, and it can be up to $200 a shift, which is more than any other state. Really? You know, there's a reason that this is kind of considered a stripper's bill of rights, because they feel that right now, when they say our jobs could be better, people tell them we'll get a better job. Mm. And that is not a fair thing to ask. Really interesting, Vivian. Watch that bill in the legislature in the Senate that would direct the LCB to amend or abolish its lewd conduct rules to allow entertainment venues to serve booze. All right, you two, moving on to our next story. Well, anyone who's used a food or grocery delivery app recently in the past couple of weeks, you've noticed an extra $5 fee tacked onto your order. That's because minimum wage laws for gig workers went into place a couple of weeks ago, and apps like DoorDash and Uber Eats and Instacart added the fee in response. Drivers for these services were notoriously underpaid, especially during the lockdown period of the pandemic, when people were overly reliant on these grocery delivery apps. 
you know, before we go any further, are either of you frequent Uber Eats, DoorDash, Instacart users? I, I, I use it pretty irregularly now. Like I used, to, you know, during the lockdown, I was like, you know, keeping Chipotle in business. But uh, as of now, it's just like if, I, you know, I'm only using it if, I, you know, happen to be sick or, you know, I've overexerted myself in some way and, you know, I, I, I can't get out. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a convenience factor for me at this point. Yeah, I think it's it's the kind of thing that I do when I look up and it's eight o'clock and I'm like, shoot, I did not make myself dinner. I probably should eat. That would probably be a good thing to do. You know, I think it's one of those things that when you do that, you always got to make sure to tip big mm-hmm. because of like how underpaid people have been. This was intended to fix that. And it is real suspect to just add on these $5 fees because of course that's going to hurt business because that $5, you know, I think a lot of people will probably pull up the app to like get their order going. And then they see that price and they're like, maybe I could eat cereal. Like, you know, (laughs) like it's one of those things that is that $5 can really count. And uh, what a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. Things have changed, but of course, who's to blame is up for debate, right? King five spoke to gig workers this week who said, they're getting less business because of this, but these apps could absorb this pretty easily and still be okay. Who, yes, who's supposed exactly. to be blaming? You know who who is responsible for picking this up? I'm going to go out on a limb and say the people who are adding the five dollar fee might be <laughs> might be to blame for the five dollar fee. The delivery companies would say you should blame the city council. <laughs> They're the ones. Well, <laughs> they, they always say, do, right? I mean. Right. Yeah, and I would say that you guys are just not that reliable of a source. Yeah, I, I mean, and I would say, you know, I, again, I mean, not to to get on the soapbox, but I mean, I, I think if a business can't, you know, pay a somewhat of a living wage, you know, to its employees or the folks it contracts with, then maybe it shouldn't be in business, right? I I had the opportunity to stay in Vashon Island not too long ago, and they have a. Uh, outfit called Vashon Eats. And what they do is, you know, it's a, it's an independent business. And what they do is they essentially, you know, have an agreement with the five or six different restaurants that are in downtown Vashon. And they, you know, they all, you know, combine together to, to pay this one person. It seems like it's it's going just fine. The, the person, you know, has a, a job that allows them a living wage. And so I think maybe a workaround to this is to dump some of these apps and pr- Potentially, there's it could be a more communitarian uh, sort of approach. Marcus, Who knows? We got a guy. We got a guy. Oh, what? We got a guy. We you got don't a guy. Say. His name is Tony. <laughs> there's one person in this city who has got this workaround in mind already. If you live oh, my in the South Lake Union Belltown area, Tony will deliver to you for five bucks. Five bucks. It's a brilliant idea. He has a poster. You scan the QR code, it gives you his personal phone number, you text him to see if he's available, and he delivers your food for a flat rate of $5. But, you know, all right, and just to put a button on this, because this is an old game that these delivery apps are doing. Remember the $15 minimum wage law when it passed? It was Jimmy John's that was like, our subs are going up $3. Or, that you know, like, it's just, it's an old story passing this on to the consumer at this point. It is a bold move of Jimmy John's to charge any more for their sandwiches, <laughs> frankly. That's really when I stopped eating Jimmy John's, to be honest. I'm like, that's it. You're kind right. of a jerk anyway, and now I'm not even doing it. Right. And, yeah. And that's the thing, right? I mean, it's this disciplining of labor with this sort of the, this false dichotomy of like, either you work for meager wages or 
you know, you work a limited time or you don't work at all. And that that can't be, you know, that those can't be the only options. Right. And it's also it reminds me of the struggle that strippers are going through, that when people are in situations that they find bad and they say, hey, we deserve a better situation. And people say, we'll find a better situation. Well, if you're going to say that, then you must not value the service. But if you value the service, but that you don't value workers getting any money for that service, then it's a bit hypocritical. Keep raging against the machine, Tony. No kidding. No kidding. We are going to leave it there. Marcus Harrison Green is the founder of the South Seattle Emerald and a columnist for the Seattle Times. Vivian McCall is the Strangers Queer Issues and Politics reporter. Really appreciate you two. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Seattle Now. We can only make this show with support from listeners. Help us make more of this kind of work by donating to KUOW. We'll drop a link in the show notes. Today's episode was produced by Vaughn Jones, who's currently looking for a second job at Tony Delivers. Our wonderful production team also includes Caroline Chamberlain Gomez, Claire McGrain, and Jenny Cecil Moore. Matt Jorgensen does our theme music. Seattle Now and KUOW Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Patricia Murphy. See you tomorrow. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.